If you were walking through Jerusalem today, you would have noticed that on its streets, you could have seen wares from the Far East. In fact, not only would you have seen merchandise from the farthest corners of the known world, you would have seen families. Families from all kinds of kindred, nation, tongue, they're settled in Zion. Jerusalem had become now an epicenter of international trade. She became a picture of wealth. In fact, as we've seen before, this was an age of opulence, an age of incredible and almost unprecedented wealth. In Uzziah's day, you have so many things that former generations only thought about as they reflected on the prosperity and blessings under Solomon's reign. You have the borders of Judah returned. In fact, you have more than that. You have the Negev, parts of that wonderful desert that nobody could penetrate, now made arable fields, turned into such a way that Judah would prosper. Furthermore, as you were to look north, you would find that Israel, the northern tribes, were really just as affluent as yourselves. In fact, as you look north, you would find that this was a period of peace. A period of peace between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel that was genuinely unparalleled before the, the division of the kingdom. It was a period of remarkable blessing. Not only that, as you looked at Judah, you would see a people that were apparently pious. You don't find the names of the Baals, the Molochs, the Asherahs, and all of those other false gods that previous generations had defected to. No, instead you find that, as we saw already, you find that worship in the temple was kept according to God's ordinance. And moreover, as we saw in this first chapter, there is no complaint upon the part of the prophet that this was a generation that neglected those means. No, this was an apparently religious, even an apparently reformed church. And in the face of all of that, God sends his prophet to say that judgment is, is pending because your piety is false. Friend, I think we, we can appreciate that that was not an easy calling. It's not an easy calling to, to tell folks who are secure who are settled, who, who cannot imagine any kind of great alteration that, that God in his just indignation is going to visit upon this land his judgment. And it's not easy, of course, to go to a people that are externally religious, seemingly godly, and say that your piety has been found wanting, and that before the face of God you have only the veneer of godliness but not its power. But that was the prophet's calling. That was the task that the Lord had set to his hand. This was a church that was apparently reformed, but lacked true godliness. It was a kingdom that was ripe for judgment. My friend, as we think of this context, I'm sure that you and I can draw quick parallels to our own day. Allow me to make bold this evening to say that that of course that's the very note that every faithful minister should be sounding 
in the West. In these islands, in the Americas, in all of our opulence, in all of our comfortability, in all of our professions of godliness, and Isaiah's message should be ours. But there's something else in our text this evening that we can't miss. And that is that not only is the prophet's calling to go to Judah and to, to unveil for her her own hypocrisy and, and to tell her that unless she repents, she will know the hard and, and the deep stroke of God's judgment. There's something else. As we see in this text, there's also a gracious promise to the mourners in Zion. That is to the faithful. And friend, what you find in this text is that God, just as he has promised to the hypocrite his judgment, he's promised to his people, his faithful, nothing less than purging and reformation, blessing and true spiritual prosperity. That too is not an easy task. To the mourner in Zion in an age like Isaiah's, That would be a hard thing to fathom. But that too, friend, is part of his calling. And that also should be a note that sounds forth from pulpits throughout this Western Hemisphere as well. Things are bleak. But friend, the hope that you and I see in this text is just as applicable to Isaiah's congregation as it is to us. To those who are true mourners in Zion, this text holds out wonderful consolation. And with God's blessing, we'll see that tonight. But in order for us to open the text and to apply it appropriately, I want us to recognize, first of all, friend, that as we look at verses 21 to the end, you have really a continuation of that second indictment that begins at verse 10. Whether you see these verses, verses 20 and following, as an appendix or as a simple continuation of that second indictment, uh, for our purposes this evening, it doesn't matter. But what is crucial to notice is, first of all, in this second element of this second indictment, you'll notice that the prophet does rehearse Judah's guilt. He repeats what we've already seen, not only in the second, but even in the first indictment, that this was a hypocritical generation. That though she had the exterior, a a veneer of piety, yet nevertheless she was, well, she was a sepulcher, whitewashed and clean in the outside, but within defection and death reigned. That we're familiar with. That we've seen the prophet demonstrate already. But what you do have in this text is a promise. It's a promise that you could say is summarized really for us in that 27th verse. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment. Again, up to this point, the guilt of hypocritical Judah has already been set before us. But now he tells us what God will do for the church. What he tells us here is that the means that God will use to reform her will be judgment. And he describes for us what that judgment looks like in the text. But the great end in all of this is the purification and so the preservation of his people. Friend, I suppose we could read this text and forget that this is supposed to be a comfort to God's people. But we need to remember that, especially in our own generation. 
When God promises that He will preserve His people, that He will purely purge away her dross, friend, that should thrill your soul and mind. That our God will not forsake His people, He will reform her. That He will not leave her as He sees her. But that those who are faithful, they will know what it is, not only to be preserved, but to be brought into true blessing. True blessing. Even after a period of great defection. And so what this text teaches us, friend, this evening is that the Lord purges his church with chastisement. He purges his church with chastisement. And very briefly, I want us to consider this under three headings. I want us to see the cause for this purgation. I want us to examine briefly its character. And finally, the consolation that this text holds forth. And so take, first of all, the cause now, I know that we've seen this already. The prophet has, has explained for us in various ways, through various symbols, what really is the malady, the great evil in the church in Judah in his day. But, but I want you to notice how he describes it for us in our text. Just look back with me here at verse 22, where he says to this generation, Thy silver is become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Now, friend, that really is a key for us to understand how we're supposed to see this generation. You see, as you read through these texts, you might think that, well, especially as you look at verses 23 and following, that, that really this is, this is a flagrantly evil, wicked generation that has no, no external connection with godliness. But if you look at the image that you find there at verse 22, you recognize what the prophet is saying. As one forebear put it to us here, he says, Dross bears some resemblance to silver. And like manner, the color of wine mixed with water resembles that of pure wine. In like manner, hypocrites by their hypocrisy may be said to assume such false colors. In other words, what you and I are supposed to see here is that in verse 21, whenever he says that that the city has become that of a harlot, that, that righteousness once lodged in it, but now murderers, that thieves are in it, that her princes love rewards, that they, they, they forget the cause of the widow. You're not supposed to see that this is a kind of open or flagrant transgression of the law. No, friend, what the prophet is doing here is he is here denominating their sins by what is at heart of all of them when he sees this hypocritical appropriation of the Sixth Commandment, seemingly keeping God's law, he says, nevertheless, you're murderers. When he sees people who are truly, not, not truly pious, but, but people who envy reward, he, he calls them thieves. Because in heart, that's what they are. But the point, friend, in this text is, they were like dross. They looked like silver, but they weren't. They looked like wine, but they were mixed. An impure, an impure wine. And then in verse 24, we're told how the Lord will deal with these ones. He says, he, I will ease me of mine adversaries. And it's a, striking, it's a striking turn of phrase, because you see here, first of all, the Lord emphasizes the personal element of this judgment. But then, friend, you recognize that he's also demonstrating in what way this hypocrisy is an affront to him. It's a vexation. It's something that tries patience. This is the cause, 
says the prophet, why the Lord will purge. But he goes a step further in verse 27. As I said to you already, thus far you and I have already encountered the same material in this chapter. But in verse 27, the prophet goes a step further. He says, Zion will be redeemed with judgment. That too is an interesting turn of phrase. And he doesn't say merely that she will be purged here. He uses the language of someone being ransomed, taken out of captivity, out of bondage. And he's saying that in the destruction of Judah's hypocrites and hypocrisy, Zion will be brought out from slavery. And, and you wonder what that means, because of course, as we read through this first chapter, you don't find anything, and as you read through the annals that are given to us in the scriptures, you don't find anything in this age as like the godly were being put into shackles or chains of iron. You don't find that. So how can we talk about Zion being redeemed, brought out of slavery? Friend, the answer is striking. The answer is that as long as hypocrisy reigns, God's people, spiritual Israel, are in a kind of bondage. There's no other way to look at this text. It's the destruction of the hypocrites that is this redemption of Zion. As the hypocrites are there, the Lord says, there, true Zion's oppressed. And so, friend, you see here that this is an act of love for God's people, as it is an act of justice toward those who are false. What this shows us, friend, is that hypocrisy is an affront to divine righteousness as it is to divine love. When we think of hypocrisy in this sense, and by that, I suppose it's right for us to remind ourselves what we mean by that is simply someone who has a veneer of godliness, who does seem to look the part, but, but who in point of fact is not. Who before God stands as the wicked. The Lord here says that this is an affront, a personal affront to him. I want you to see why that is just very briefly. In the scriptures, we're told that the sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. Now, that's given to us twice in the book of Proverbs. But then this text adds as another line, verse 21. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked heart? What you see here, friend, is that the Lord, as he's describing those who approach him in a false way as hypocrites, he's saying here that it's an abomination. But then he goes a step further and he shows us, first of all, that not all sin is equally heinous in the sight of God. There's something more here. When he bringeth it with a wicked mind, says the preacher in Proverbs, that is even more heinous, more wicked. Friend, we can't miss that hypocrisy is in the worship of God especially. As men and women profess faith, it is a heinous thing before the Lord. You think of Ecclesiastes 5, where the Lord says, Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. The idea there, friend, again, is in the context of public worship, in the context of the church. And he's saying, here hypocrisy, in this case, covenant breaking, 
is a great and a heinous sin. It carries with it a high and aggravated guilt. The illustration of that, even in the New Testament, of course, comes to us in Acts 5. When there you have Ananias and Sapphira, they come and, and they come with the intention of deceiving the church. But do you remember how Peter deal, deals with them? He says, Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost. They thought they were deceiving Christians. But in the Lord's judgment, friend, it was nothing less than an attempt to deceive the Holy Ghost. So it is with all hypocrisy. Uh, and so, friend, what we find here is, of course, it is the case that those who approach God in this way, they incur great guilt. In fact, as Peter tells us in Second Peter 2, so much so, that it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now, that is the cause of divine righteousness. But what of the cause of love? That is love to God's people. I said to you already that in this text, this purging, this removal of the hypocrites is actually an act of love for spiritual Israel. So how so? I want you to notice what Ezekiel 9 tells us. He says, there to the prophet, he says, Go through the midst of Jerusalem and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Now note how the faithful are there described. They are those, as again Ezekiel describes them, they are those who sigh and cry for all of the abominations that are committed in the age of that church. What you see here, friend, is a picture of of the faithful grieving at the hypocrisy that they see. They don't just know that it's wrong, and this is so very important for us to understand the text. Friend, they feel... They feel its oppression. They are deeply grieved before God because of what they see. Rivers of water, says the psalmist, run from mine eyes because men do not keep the law of the Lord. Friend, that's one of the ways in which hypocrisy in an age of the church is an oppression to the faithful. They sigh and they cry over it. And then I want you to notice this as well. In Revelation 3, a text that we've read several times now, Christ says to that church in Sardis, Thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. This exposing of those who were hypocrites in Sardis. There the Lord Christ says in that exposure and when they acknowledge the true faithful. He says then he does so that they would know that he loved them. The exposure of hypocrisy in this case the Lord explicitly is an act of his love. What this text teaches us, friend, is that holiness is more pure, as hypocrisy is more vile than hypocrites imagine. God regards, God regards hypocrisy as a great and a heinous sin. And this text clearly evinces that. But it also shows us, friend, that in this text, that the Lord is keen to deliver his people from it as they sigh and cry over it. 
But secondly, I want us briefly to look at the character of this purgation. As we look at verse 25, the Lord says explicitly he, that he will purely purge them. He will take away all their ten. It's the Lord's work that will be done. Then in verse 26, he shows us how this will be done. He says, I will restore thy judges. What you see here, friend, is that he will do so by destroying, in verse 28, the transgressors. And what does that look like? What do the destruction of the transgressors look like? As you see it in the text, he says there that they will be ashamed of the yokes which ye have desired. But then note this. Just in the next line, he says, ye shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth. There's something of an irony there. He's saying that in the destruction of these sinners, he's saying that there... They will be ashamed of their hypocrisy, but then they will be like the object of their sin. He reiterates the same idea in the next line. He says, they will be confounded for, their, for the gardens, but ye shall be as a garden that hath no water. And so, friend, the nature of this purgation is quite straightforward. It's judgment to the hypocrite according to their hypocrisy. The hypocrite and his hypocrisy will be together like one. They'll be consumed like and with their sin. And in verse 31, we're told that they shall burn together. What you see in this text, then, friend, is that in this purging, the Lord God restores righteousness through the destruction of sin with the impenitent. You recognize, friend, that the Lord speaks of this in several ways. To take one example from the New Testament, take what you have John the Baptist describing the work of Christ in. As he says, Christ, the fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's his floor, and he will purge it by his own power. Friend, so is the church. That is the floor there in view. The Lord says that he will purge his floor. He will destroy the chaff because it's his floor that he would have purged. But I also want you to notice this. Friend, in this text you have a picture of the sinner and his sin joined together in judgment. It's a biblical motif that I think we often forget, but it's one that's so very crucial. He says, here that they will be like their sin and then in verse 31 that they will be that the sinner will be like the flame and his sin like the tinder and they will just burn together in psalm 9 you have something of this he says the heathen are sunk down in the pit which they made the idea is that that in god's judgment here as he visits his wrath upon the hypocrite their sin Their sin, as it were, will be a consuming to them, just as they are to it. They'll be ashamed of their idols, and they'll burn with them. But if I can bring this to a more individual level, what we're talking about here is in the corporate church, but but you recognize, friend, that there are themes that that pertain to all of Christian life, and on the individual level. The Lord does this kind of work, even with the believer. You see, the Lord still hates his people's hypocrisy, though he loves them. As we read from 1 Corinthians 3, we're told exactly 
that very fact that God will do that work of purging his people. They have need of smelting. They have need that their dross too would be burned away. That the wood, the hay, and the stubble would be consumed even though they themselves are saved. Friend, in this text, you and I are supposed to see that that the Lord hates hypocrisy and he'll purge his church. He'll purge her corporately. And he'll even purge his own people individually in a similar way, though they themselves are saved. But as we close this evening, I want us to come really to what I want us to leave this first chapter meditating upon, and that is the consolation that is given to Zion. In verse 27, you have the words again, Zion shall be redeemed. Now that means, friend, very evidently, that Zion will not be consumed. The church will stand. And all of this conflagration, she will remain. And she's also to see that in the midst of all of these judgments, it is pruning out of love for the faithful, for those who are truly members of the invisible church. But if we've been paying attention to this text at all, friend, if we've, if we've sought to apply the text to our own hearts, really from verse 2, this may leave a question in our minds, and it's a crucial one. Who are true recipients to this promise? Is it only to those who have never defiled their garments? Only to those who, who could not fall under the category that we've been seeing through these several verses? Friend, the wonderful thing in this text is that the answer to that is no. I want you to notice here, as you look at that 27th verse, is a promise that belongs to her converts. Literally, that is to her returners. He's not here anticipating the return from exile. It shouldn't be read like that at all. In fact, what you and I are supposed to see when he refers to her converts, he's speaking of the same ones he does in Isaiah 59 where he says, the Lord shall come unto Zion unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, who are converted originally from transgression in Jacob. And these, these who are saved here are not those who could ever say that they always kept their garments clean, that they were never part and parcel of the generation's sins. The promise of this text belongs to those who are made converts. Hypocrites once, but now turned and turned truly to the Lord. And friend, there is a great hope and comfort in that. Because if we've listened to this text appropriately, friend, you and I should detect ourselves at various points in these verses. And yet in this moment, the Lord says to his church, Whoever should turn away from their hypocrisy, they too will know his blessing. In fact, friend, what we're told here is that penitent hypocrites are saved, and as this promise indicates, are even prosperous. What I mean by that is that they are made as though they had never sinned. In his sight in Isaiah 54, we read thus, Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. Or thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, 
and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. Striking in that text is that her widowhood and her reproach was due to her hypocrisy. And now having turned to the Lord, the Lord says to her, Thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth. Hypocrite once, but now, friend, brought into a wide and blessed place. Isaiah 55. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And that is the consolation in this text. There is so much of judgment that you and I have been meditating upon these past several Lord's Day evenings. But this is the note that you and I are supposed to be left with. That while the impenitent hypocrite perishes with his hypocrisy, friend, the penitent hypocrite, the one who really turns to the Lord, is numbered among those who know God's blessing in Zion. As we leave this text and seek to apply it to ourselves, I suppose, friend, that kind of comfort only comes to those who really despise sin more than suffering. The comfort that God will purge his church and is only comforting to those who are willing to part with sin. The comfort that the believer has that God will refine, even chasten, to drive them away from sin is only a comfort to those who hate sin more than suffering. And so that is the question in this text. Friend, are we those, are we numbered among those who despise our sin more than pain? But the comfort in this passage, of course, friend, is just as equally tied to that. If the answer is in the affirmative, friend, then this text shows you that on the corporate level, of course, the Lord will purge Zion. The Lord has promised even before the end that the church will know reformation, that she will know a blessed period of reviving, quickening, and purity. And friend, that should thrill your heart and mind, especially when you live in a generation such as ours. The Lord purges his church, and he will. But on an individual level, this is no less comforting. You see, friend, what you have here on the corporate level is writ into the life of every believer. If you long to part with your sin, if you long to be made more humble, long to be made more Christ-like, the Lord says he'll take it upon him as his own work. He will purge. He will cleanse his people. And beloved, that is a comfort for us, for we who who long to be separated from our sin more and more, who long for Christ's sake to be made more into his likeness. And so we leave this text with an exhortation. And friend, the exhortation is, of course, first of all, if, if you are not, Friend, if you are not numbered among those who have the power of godliness and only have its form, this text is a clarion call to repent. And it's a call to repent, friend, with that precious promise that in doing so, you will be well received. If you have a name of godliness but not its power, 
Friend, you may be numbered among the converts here so described. The call then is to turn. To turn while there is time. But the other exhortation, friend, is to plead for this purging grace. Friend, we ought to be a people praying that God not only would would reform his church broadly, but it should be our preeminent cry as we make individual access to the throne of grace. That we would see this work done in ourselves. That he, as we read in verse 25, will purge away dross, take away tent. May that be our great desire as we leave this portion of God's word this evening. Amen.